Good morning, church. As Andy said, my name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. I want to welcome those of you that are at the Stafford campus today. Uh, those of you that are joining us in Fredericksburg, where some of my favorite student volunteers worship, welcome you guys as well. And those of you joining us online, uh, we're going to be coming out of Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 3, and we are going to blaze a trail all the way to verse 10 if you want to get there. But as is our custom, we are going to pray it up and ask God to show up and transform our hearts and minds before we dig in. So if you bow your heads. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for giving us your spirit to encourage, convict, and teach us. We thank you for giving us your word so that we would never be ignorant of your will. We thank you for giving us each other that we can be a family and we can do this journey together. And we just ask right now that this time is productive, that it glorifies you, and we learn by the combination of your spirit and your word. Amen. All right, so with that very spiritual moment now handled, uh, we're going to start our uh, discussion today in a rather awkward place. We're going to start it in a middle school in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, as any of you that have gone through uh, middle school, it's also sometimes known as the worst three years of someone's life. Uh, it can be difficult and can be challenging. And uh, we're going to start in a middle school in Gainesville, Florida in the 1990s with a young eighth grade, Jason Windsor, uh, navigating with maturity beyond his young years. <laughs> navigating middle school so well, so expertly. And for those of you that have been to middle school, you know that education happens on two levels. There's the formal training of education, the going to classes, the opening of books, and then there's the underground economy of middle school. There's the playing cards in the courtyard for quarters with your lunch money. There's the don't go in that bathroom because you might end up dead. There, you know, there's all of, all of those methods of navigating your middle school as well. And one thing that happened at this particular middle school in the 1990s was an underground video game trading ring. So we would, uh, several of us young men that were interested in video games, we would trade, we would buy, we would sell. And uh, this happened with me. Uh, I had a game called Kid Icarus, which I realized two of you probably recognize. Um, but just go with me. And uh, a young man wanted to trade me for this game, and he wanted to trade me a game title called Final Fantasy. That's a more recognizable title, which should tell you all you need to know about this deal. Uh, I was getting the far superior end of the deal, but that's what we like to call his bad. That's not my bad. That's his bad. So we make the deal, we make the exchange, and if in your mind you can probably picture it, how middle school exchanges go down, right? Like I subtly show him what I got, and he shows me what he got, and then we're like, same time, same time, same time. Poof, poof, and then we're, we're done. No teacher scene, no, no paper record. The deal is done, and we're, we're off to our classes. Uh, well, the next day comes, and uh, my young associate is no longer happy with our arrangement. Um, he now realizes he probably didn't get the best end of this deal, and he wants to trade for his game back. Um, I remember I told you how mature and wise I was. I'm sure I handled it with grace. I'm sure I handled it just, you just, just picture the best way to handle it in your mind and then double it. Like, that's probably what I did. I gently reminded him that it was no longer his game. Uh, we had made a deal, and I would be keeping my game and I wish him well with his future endeavors. Um, so a few days later, he comes and he wants a new deal. 
and I'm going to say this deal intrigues me, because he wants to trade me Mega Man 3 for the game he traded me before. Now again, like five of you get that reference, so five of you know where I'm living, and five of you went, oh my word. Because Mega Man 3, imagine whatever the, I'm, I'm 44 years old now, so I don't, I don't know the ins and outs like I did when I was eighth grade Jason Windsor, but imagine the most popular video game now and then times it by seven million. That was this title. No one could buy it, no one could get it, you couldn't rent it, you couldn't get your hands on it. So of course, I meet his, his offer with skepticism. Uh, and he, but he shows me, he's like, yeah, he shows me the case. I'm like, oh man, yes, this, yes, deal. We're going there, absolutely. I will trade you, because now it's his game again. I will trade you your game back for Mega Man 3. We are now in agreement. Uh, so I bring it the next day of school, and it, you know how it goes down. Like I show him, I got this. Yeah, you got what you're supposed to have? Yeah, I got what you, yes, yeah, we got this. So we change. Exchange comes, exchange comes, exchange comes. The second my game touches his hand, snatches that, pulls it back, puts the Mega Man case, bam, bam, here's your game back, and he darts into our computer room. Yeah, and now, what am I supposed to do? We ain't supposed to be trading video games at school anyway. I'm supposed to go tell on him? Hey, computer teacher, guy uh, swindled me, and now I want you to uh, enforce and give this game back to me. Oh, and that, telling my parents was off the table. They had no knowledge that any of this was going on, and we were not about to include them into this either, right? So I'm stuck. He got me. I was actually, looking back on it, I'm fairly impressed. Like, that was a pretty good deception. But at the time, I felt like most of us feel when we get deceived, right? I felt like I was taken advantage of. I felt like he was wrong. I felt like maybe he shouldn't have done that because deception is wrong. And I don't think I'm unique in that. I think that the vast majority of us worshiping together this morning and watching online, uh, we have been deceived. That's not unique to my experience, right? And oftentimes, the results of our deception are far worse than me getting my video game back, right? When people deceive us, sometimes the stakes are far higher, and it literally turns our lives upside down. When we act with trust in the wrong person, or when we act on the wrong information, the results can be disastrous. But it's nowhere near as common to be deceived by others as it is for us to practice self-deception. We have PhDs in deceiving ourselves to believe things that aren't true are true. And I would weigh that those consequences are far more dangerous because they have a much greater chance of reaching to our core and our identity and affecting not only ourselves, but the people in our immediate spheres. So I would say that self-deception is both the most common and the worst deception. And with this kind of in mind, with holding that idea in our heads, we're gonna get, dig into Galatians chapter six, and we're gonna start in verse three where Paul writes, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. That verse is fairly straightforward, right? And probably great advice whether you claim the Christian faith or not, right? Don't think that you're something when you're not. Don't think that you're better than you are because then your actions aren't going to reflect the pop proper perception. Don't think that you're worse than you are. Regard yourself properly. And we wrestle with kind of who we are, right? So that, that's a bigger question than it seemed. Like, how should I perceive myself? Because one of the great questions of the human race is, who am I? 
right? And as a created being, we have deceived ourselves into thinking we get to create our identity when actually we don't have the privilege of creating our identity, we have the privilege of discovering our identity because we've already been created. This is one of the great self-deceptions of our time, that we can just go be whatever we want to be, but you didn't create yourself. You've already been created, you've already been fashioned, and this is a blessing to be able to discover your identity rather than create it, because I promise you that discovering an identity is way easier than creating an identity and has much less trial and error. While you figure out who you are, your identity has already been created because you are, in fact, who God says you are. So then your job becomes figuring out who does God say that I am. God says you're loved. Bam. You get to live out of that. You don't have to feel worthless or minimized, or uncared for. Why? Because part of your identity is loved by God. You don't have to figure that part out. Scripture says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Bam, that's it. Case closed. You don't have to worry about doubting yourself, or your gifts, or your abilities, or your position. Why? Because you were fashioned by a creator that's a lot smarter than us. And when we take on the task of discovering our identity rather than creating it, we can then perceive ourselves in the correct light because we are agreeing with God about who we are and we all know that God will always get that answer correct. And so then the question becomes, who does God say I am instead of who do I want to create myself to be? And we get to skip all the frustration and discouragement which comes with the trial and error of creating our identity because one of our favorite ways to create our identity is through comparison, right? Not as good as him, but I'm better than her. I can do that better, I'm faster than him. This is kind of how we find our niche in society is through comparison. But comparison will always fail and God knows this. So in verse four, Paul picks it up. He says, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. He says, look, test your own actions. And don't test your own actions by comparing it to others, because you realize the comparison method of finding out who we are will always fail on two accounts. First and foremost, because we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by our actions. We say, oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. So we kind of give ourselves a pass on the actions, where when somebody else does it, we say, you, you're responsible for what comes out of your mouth. And so we judge ourselves on a different scale, but not only that, you gotta realize when we play the comparison game, when you actually pick who you're comparing to, the deck is always stacked in your favor. You always pick the people that you match up favorably to, but I promise you, you're really, really spiritual about it because it usually looks something like what we'll see on the screen behind me. So your comparison scale probably is a nice diagonal, right, with the people higher up on the scale being closer to God and the people lower on the scale probably being farther away. And your, your top of the scale is probably people that fall in the Mother Teresa vein, right? Uh, we're not really comparing ourselves to Mother Teresa, but she's really, really good, so she's up at the top, and that's not like a fair comparison, but philosophically, that's the ideal. So to make sure our list doesn't look too stacked, 
we got to have a Mother Teresa figure up there, because otherwise, I've stacked the deck. But by putting Mother Teresa up there, and probably then the missionaries right next to her, because like I'm, I'm not a missionary good, right? So he's, missionaries probably higher up the scale than I am. So we'll put the missionary, we'll put the Mother Teresa up there, and then this is my scale. So I put a teacher third. Uh, we have had the privilege of watching online school for a while now, and I promise you, y'all, pray for your kids' teachers. Because what I have seen made me glad that God did not call me to be an elementary school teacher. <laughs> Guys, I think it should be mandatory in Stafford County for all of us who have kids in the public school system to observe three classrooms. I'm just telling you, some of y'all get a hold of your kids if you see it. It is, they are being tested, they are being challenged. You pray for those teachers because they might be closer to Mother Teresa than the missionaries. I might have put that out of order. I'll get off my soapbox now, we'll get back to scripture. All that was just Jasonizing, by the way. You don't, that's not scripture. We'll put that in a separate category. So, then there's people that do a lot of charity, not like a little bit of charity, but like a lot of charity, like weekly, you know, not, not like me. I do, I do some charity, which is why I'm lower on the scale than the people that do a lot of charity because they do a lot and I do a little, but I'm probably still better than the harmless old guy that lives across the street. Not that he's bad. He's not, he's not a bad guy, but I don't really ever see him do anything good. Like he checks his mail, waves hi to my kids. Like he's, he's, he's good, but I'm, I do a little bit more charity. I'm, I'm probably better than him. We, I mean, we could talk about it, but I'm probably better than him. But I know I'm better than those people that check out 15 items in the 10 item line. I know I'm better than them. Because I don't do that, which automatically makes me better than them. So while we can debate the guy across the street, there's no debate there. And the guy that cuts me off in traffic or the guy that won't let me out of the parking lot, they're worse than those people. I know I'm not that bad. Those people that drive 610, they need Jesus. Because they, they all over the place. I know they're worse than me because I let some of them out and I don't change lanes without using a blinker. I have more Jesus in me than them. And then it's the lady that calls me during dinner to sell me my car warranty that I never bought in the first place. How could that thing be expired? I never had one. So not only are you interrupting my dinner, you're lying. I know I'm better than her. And then there's people that steal. I, I'm probably better than that. Now we all know office supplies don't count. So <laughs> office supplies don't count. So, but we know we're better than them. And I probably haven't done anything illegal that would land me in prison since college. So, <laughs> so we're probably better than those people as well. And that's how we play the comparison game. That's how we play the game. And when you pick the people, you stack the deck, and that line can say whatever you want it to say. And then you believe it, and bam, self-deception achieved. Because the real graph should probably look more like this. God and people that need God. That's what the real graph looks like. That's the comparison. Comparison of Jesus and people that need Jesus. Because it says right there, each one should test their own actions. And it's not saying you should test your own actions against the actions of another. In fact, it says don't do that. It says don't compare your actions to someone else's. So it begs the question, what do I test my actions against? I test my actions against scripture. And what does scripture say? In James, scripture says whoever has broken one law 
is guilty of breaking the entire law. There is no diagonal scale. There's perfect people and imperfect people. And let me tell you, that first group is unpopulated. So really, there's one group of people, people that need Jesus. That's our categorization, that's our comparison. Now within that, that group, there are two subgroups. There are people who don't agree that Jesus is who he says he is, and there are people who do agree that Jesus is that he says he is. This is the two subgroups. I mean, you can break down all of humanity that has ever existed in the one category of people who need Jesus, and then you can break down all humanity in those two groups. People who agree that Jesus is who he says he is, and people that don't agree that Jesus is who he says he is, but both still need Jesus. One needs to drop the self-deception that they don't need a savior. They need to agree that they have done wrong, and because of that wrong, they will be held accountable to God for the wrong that they've done. Fortunately for us, Jesus, unwilling that that would be the arrangement, comes out of heaven, lives a sinless life, is ultimately murdered on the cross, raises again, and will come back to gather the other group, those who believe that he is who he says he is. Both groups still accountable. One group will be separated from God forever because they don't agree with God about who Jesus is, and one group will be with him forever. First group, drop the deception. You need Jesus. Second group, drop the deception. You need Jesus. It's beautiful how Scripture makes things so simple sometimes. It's self-deception. We make it complicated. Uh, he continues on. Because Paul knows we're experts at deceiving ourselves, but he wants to remind us there's a great consequence to deceiving ourselves because God will not follow us in that deception. So he continues in verse seven where he says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. He says, okay, don't deceive yourself about different groupings of people. Don't deceive yourself through the comparison game, but here we're gonna say it again because anything this true bears repeating. Don't believe yourself God will not follow you in your self-deception. You will just be wrong. God is going to judge it correctly regardless of what you believe because a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal lives. Regardless of how we perceive ourselves, God is going to give us the harvest that we plant because he cannot be deceived. And we know this, we know this, we know this, we know this. None of you planted flowers in the spring. And when those little guys started to shoot up, we're going, man, I was hoping for potatoes. <laughs> that doesn't happen. When you plant flowers, you know what grows. Flowers, if they didn't, you'd go back to the store and get a refund. My homie Chris has an amazing garden a stunning garden that he has obviously put a lot of time and energy into. It's a 10 out of 10, it's impressive, you should see it. One of the crops that most impressed me in his garden is his peppers. He has robust peppers, they are beautiful, they are a sight to behold. When my homie planted peppers, you know what he expected to come out of that ground. He was not surprised when peppers shot up. In fact, I would submit to you if corn had grown, he'd have been shocked. It had been either a tragedy or a miracle, but it wouldn't have been normal, right? This would be something we're calling, how did this happen? 
We'd have been finding an alternate explanation. Why would we have had to look for an alternate explanation? Because that doesn't happen, ever. But for some reason in our lives, we accept to be the exception and not the rule. We know darn well that what we put in the ground is what we pull out of the ground. But for some reason, we expect our lives to be the exception to that rule. When scripture clearly says, you will reap what you sow. So if you sow lies into your relationships, you reap dishonesty. If you sow procrastination into your ethic, you reap stress. But if you sow honesty into your relationships, you get intimacy. And if you, if you sow a good work ethic, you reap a good reputation. Because what you put in will be what you pull out. And even though we deceive ourselves into believing we can beat the system, I would say all of our lives show us that we cannot. We have more than enough empirical evidence to show that when we sow nonsense into our lives, we pull nonsense out. And a lot of times when we pull nonsense out, we get mad. We get mad at God. God, why am I pulling this nonsense out of my life, forgetting that God has given us guardrails, God has given us a plan. He has told us how to interact with each other, how to interact at work, how to behave in our relationships. And each one of us has said, yeah, I don't really like that. That's really restrictive. And we bristle at that. And we call it, ah, no, I don't like all those rules. That's what we call it, right? Like putting your hand on a hot stove, that's a rule. It's a really good rule. You should probably follow that rule, right? But it's restricting. Yeah, that's, that's what guidelines are. They keep you from walking into traffic. They're generally a good thing. And he gives them to us for our benefit and then when we ignore the guideline giver and we ignore the guideline and sow that junk into our garden, we are mad at him when we pull out what we sowed. And we're frustrated, forgetting that God cannot be mocked. Now for some of you, that resonated. Because for some of you, like me, you have sowed a lot of nonsense in your garden. And for some of you, like me, when I read this, I gave thanks to God. I was like, man, you actually went really light on me in some of these harvests. Because I have sowed some abject ridiculousness into my garden. But some of you sat there and you went, Jay, that's not what I put in my garden. I sowed the good stuff into my garden. I followed the guidelines that God set out for me. I follow, I did what he's asked. But other people sowed nonsense into my garden and that can happen, right? Who you're intimate with and who you're around, you give them permission to put seeds in your garden. And what they put in will come up in your life. And it's not fair, but that's why you have to guard your heart so closely. That's why you have to be careful who gets a voice and a seed in your life. Because they might not be sowing what you're sowing. And you might be like, I am working hard at work, but I'm not getting the benefits from that. I didn't sow these things in my relationship, but my relationships are still stagnant. I didn't sow laziness, but I still didn't get the results from that. And that can happen, and God knows that. And this is the beauty of scripture, because that happens. People sow what they're supposed to sow, and then it doesn't work out the way that we think it could out. And you know people like this, maybe you are someone like that, but you know people that have left this faith 
because they have followed the guidelines and not gotten back what was promised. But Paul has a word. If that's you, Paul has a word for you today. In verse nine, he says, let us not become weary in doing good. Say, say that again. Just, just, just sit on that for a minute. Let us not become weary in doing good because that's hard. That is hard. It is hard when you studied for the test to watch some cheater get a better grade than you. That's hard. It is hard to do good day after day and sow the right things and watch the other people that aren't seemingly get ahead. But let's take a step back. Let's remind ourselves we don't see the whole story. We don't know if they're getting ahead or not. In fact, I would contend they're not because back to verse seven, it says God is not mocked. That's what it says. But it's weary to continue doing the same things. So let's read it like this. Don't become weary in doing good, mom. Don't become weary in doing good, dad. Student, don't become weary in doing good. Why don't become weary in doing good? For at a proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, I think that's the issue we have. At a proper time. Our timing is not always God's timing but his timing is better. The harvest we're looking for may come in this life, but it might not. And I would claim that it's better if the harvest doesn't come in this life because scripture says, put your treasure where thieves can't steal it and where rust and decay can't get at it. It's actually better for us if we harvest it in the next life, but that's hard. When you're doing the things that God asks you to and you're not seeing the fruit, I'm not here to minimize that today. It's much easier for us that's so nonsense to see the nonsense. We go, that makes sense. But if you're one of those people that sowed this and the broken world hasn't given you the harvest yet, I know it's coming. How do I know it's coming? Because God says it's coming. It would be a tragedy for you who are weary to give up doing good now when your harvest might be one day away. I don't know when it's coming, but it would be a tragedy to give up before the harvest come knowing full well that God cannot be mocked and the harvest is on the way, but he knows it's hard. And so we're gonna finish in verse 10. And this isn't some nice little wrap up. This to me is the meat and potatoes of the entire passage that we went through. This is it. Right here, this is what we mean when, he, when I believe scripture says be the church. This is it right here. Paul closes this section by saying, therefore. He's saying, hey, I know you're weary. Don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You know a time, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. I can point at moments in my life where I was on the verge of giving up. But a kind word, a kind gesture, it wasn't even major in some times. Encouraged me, because isn't that right? When you're on the breaking point, can't a cup of coffee literally change your life? When you're on the breaking point and someone sits with you for 15 minutes or drops a card or buys your lunch or just hangs with you, can't it literally change the entire trajectory of your existence? We can all do this. 
This doesn't have to be an age limit or a status limit or a monetary requirement. We as the body of Christ can all encourage each other as we grow weary of doing good, as we go about sowing and in our lives, we can all do this. My wife phrases it like this. She says, when you're having a bad day, do something that encourages someone else because it reorients your whole day. It changes the whole trajectory of your day and your day. And that's actually borne fruit in our family. We started this thing off in middle school and we're gonna end it in middle school. Right down the road, uh, one of my daughters is a student at Shirley Heim and a kid in her PE class was getting picked on fairly viciously. And so she just took some time. She got the crayons and she got the markers and she folded a piece of paper and she wrote the kids like a character from the kids' favorite video game on it. And she just put something like, you can do this. Like that, it's that simple. Now, do I know that if that was a life-changing moment for the young man? I have no idea. But I can tell you if I was getting picked on pretty hard, I would want that card. We can do it. And in fact, we should do it. This is something that everyone in this room can grab hold of and practice. And that's the beauty of scripture. That's the beauty of what God asks us to do. He says, I'll grow the crops. All you gotta do is plant the right things. Find someone this week in your life that you think is weary. Pray, God, show me who's weary. Carve out just a little bit of time a small seed to encourage that person. And if you and I do that enough, we will literally change the fabric of Stafford County and Spotsylvania County because the harvest will be more than we can even imagine when we're encouraging each other and we're being the body. Don't deceive yourself. Don't think you're something when you are not. You need Jesus. You may need to know him, or you may already know him. But you need Jesus, and he will not be mocked. What you sow, you will pull out. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but it will show up in your life. You know how I know? God says it. But what we can hold on to tomorrow, not necessarily waiting to see what comes out, but what we can hold on for tomorrow is we can encourage others who are on the journey with us. We can encourage those who have become weary of doing good. And we can have the humility to allow others to encourage us and not be, I got this. We can have the humility to let others speak in our lives as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. And we thank you most of all for loving us. I ask for those who are weary of doing good that this week someone in their lives picks up the baton and encourages them and their trajectory changes. I ask for those who don't know you that they settle that question in their mind, that they agree with you about who you say Jesus is and know you. We ask for every believer in the world to embrace these principles and be the church and to encourage one another as we go about our business for these days and the rest of our days. We ask these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and we ask these things in your son's name, amen.